Well, I agree with Marilyn. What a, a wonderful time singing this morning. What a wonderful time hearing God's word read and prayed. I could go home now encouraged, but I'm going to preach anyway. Here is something that we need to understand about the persecution we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We have mentioned each week that we've been in the book of Revelation so far that Domitian is the emperor and that Christians, through various ways as they had been throughout the Bible and in the book of Acts, were experiencing levels and different types of persecution. But listen, passive and silent Christians were of little concern to Rome. What got John in trouble is not only that he was a Christian, but that he was a speaking Christian. Is the word of God on your mouth? Is the testimony about Jesus Christ your testimony? One way that the book of Revelation could fall flat right in front of you is if there is no word of God or testimony of Jesus in your life. If there is no burden about how lost, lost people are. If you are very comfortable in your Christianity, might you consider that it is not because the persecution out there is not as bad as they say it is, but because very few people know that you are a Christian. Jesus did not only warn the Christians of China and Burma and Iran about persecution, he warned all disciples, all who are in Christ. Jesus taught about that seed which falls on the rocky ground, some who Here the word are like seeds falling onto rocky ground. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the word sown on rocky ground, hearts of men's, the ones who when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. When they have no root in themselves but endure for a while, then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Let us ask ourselves this question this morning. If I were living in 90 AD Rome during the time of the Roman emperor Domitian like John, would I be in any danger of being thrown into or onto an island on account of the word of God or the testimony of Jesus? Would I be in any danger whatsoever? Or would I simply go to the grocery store without being bothered? Would I go to all the restaurants and cause no disturbance? Would my work relationships be entirely unbothered? Friends, has a single acquaintance of yours become uncomfortable on account of the Word of God? Has a family gathering become awkward for you 
Are people less comfortable around you at work because of a conversation you had with them yesterday about the gospel? Is your spouse annoyed with you because of the gospel? Are you on any kind of proverbial island at all? Has gathering with the church for worship caused people to make comments about you or degrade you? Or are you welcomed everywhere you go just the same as if there were no difference between you and the world? Are you welcomed in every sphere because the word of God in the name of Jesus Christ never comes through your teeth? Can we really bemoan the tribulation of Christians in our time if we are not sharing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and so feeling it ourselves? Likewise, we cannot explain away the persecution that's being reported around us if we haven't shared the way the testimony of Jesus with anyone ourselves. This is the more precise context for the book of Revelation. Those who are persecuted on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Christians, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is supposed to be in our mouths. Be a witness to someone. Make a plan. Do not agree with your own apathy about telling other people about Jesus. Ask someone to read a book with you and to pray with you about sharing Jesus with others. Read the Bible together for the sake of sharing the gospel with others. Maybe you would find help from these books, which I think are short and brief and to the point. Three books, Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever, Evangelism by Max Stiles, or What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever, Evangelism by Max Stiles, or What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Three short books, all of which we should have around in our bookstall or in our conference room that you could grab and say, let's read this together to attack my own apathy about sharing the gospel with other people. Make a plan to stop not sharing the gospel. That's how Dever puts it in his book. What could you ask someone this week in order to tell them about Christ? Here's just a few simple ways to do that this week. Just ask someone to begin a conversation what was the spiritual environment that you grew up in in your home? Did you go to church? Did you grow up in a Buddhist home? Tell me about you. Tell me about your faith. And see if you don't find an opportunity for both of you to begin sharing what's going on in your lives. Ask someone if they would like to come to your church on any given Sunday. And if they say no, ask, well, why not? What, what, what keeps you from coming? And if they say something like, oh, well, church is not for me, ask them, why isn't church for you? Well, because of this thing that happened when I was a kid and I was at church, and would you tell me about that thing that happened when you were a kid and you were at church? Don't, don't give up. You know, sometimes I think we... We need to know, we need to care more about some people's salvation than they do. I don't really feel comfortable going to church. Okay, well, it's been a good talk. <laughs> like, we're glad to get out of there. 
Maybe just ask a simple question. What have you heard about Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? Let them tell you what they know about Jesus and see what comes out. I was shocked this week getting my hair cut, which is always a spiritual battle for me because I want to be quiet for a half hour and they want to chat. And I feel responsible for talking about Jesus when people get chatty. So I was getting my hair cut this week and someone was talking to me. They asked me what I do which is my favorite question to answer. I'm a pastor. Oh, and she gets all excited. We start talking, and she's talking about Lent and all these things, and she's talking about Easter. So I just asked her, well, what do you think Easter is really about? And she said, I think it's about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after he died on the cross. <laughs> Pretty much it. Yeah, like you, you, you are on the right track, right? You just ask a simple question. You never know what someone might say. Friends, let me encourage you to take the cards that are in your worship guide and use those. Maybe that would be a little help for you to put something in your hand and just go from nothing to something. It's not a full-blown apologetic of the gospel to have that card in your hand, but maybe it will help you from going being quiet and nothing to having something you put in your hand and say, this is going on at our church. Would you like to come? I would love to have you and meet you there and sit with you and would love for you to bring lunch and come to Easter with us. Let me tell you something. If you are not joining in the ministry of the witness of God's word and the testimony of Christ, friends, I'm concerned that one of two things might happen for you as we read through the book of Revelation. If you don't have any burden, if you don't have any desire, if you don't have any fire in your bones to tell someone about, even if you're not good at it, even if you don't do it often, even if you constantly wrestle with guilt for not doing it enough, but there is in you a desire to do that and a noticing of people and a praying to that end and a fellowship with other Christians toward that direction. If that's not there, I think one of two things is going to happen as we read through the book of Revelation. One possibility might be that you will be bored to death. Bored. Revelation will not hit home for you like it should. Revelation will seem like overkill to you. Revelation will not excite or encourage you. It will seem out of place in your life. Imagine for a moment, just if you will, that you're on a yacht just off the coast of some tropical island. You have servants bringing you drinks at sunset. You spend the evenings laughing about little happenings that went on during the day. You wake up and you take a swim, and your only problem that you worry about is where you are going to sail off to next. Now imagine that someone comes running up to the shore, just a voice's throw away from your boat, and they start yelling and pleading out loud to everyone in hearing distance, if you can hear me, don't worry, help is on the way. Help is on the way. The conquering king is coming soon. What does that matter to you? You, you don't even feel like you're in trouble. You, you're not on an island. You're on a yacht enjoying yourself. The message really means nothing to you, but if you've been stranded on that island long enough to start turning volleyballs into friends, and you're deep into the wood, and you hear someone shouting, if you can hear me, don't worry. Help us on the way. Help us on the way. The conquering king is coming soon. You will sprint through the woods, find that voice, and look to the horizon for the king. Are you on the island of any sort on the account of God's word in the testimony of Jesus Christ? 
Because I'm concerned that if not, Revelation is going to fall flat right in front of you. It is a message from Christ in heaven to embattled Christians enduring whatever comes their way as they share the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. Or you'll be bored or you might be really excited about the wrong things. Instead of rejoicing that Jesus is coming and soon and that he is going to judge and conquer and save perfectly in God's plan, you will be entertained by revelation like a Sunday morning Sudoku puzzle. It will interest you. The dates and the structures and the numbers and the fantastic creatures and the times may, e- may be enjoyed as an intellectual exercise. All the moving pieces and parts may tickle your intellect, but your chest will never swell as so high with hope and joy at the mentioning of Jesus because it is a call of salvation and preservation to those on the island And you're playing Sudoku trying to figure out dates and times and charts on the yacht. Church, if persecution causes you no great sting, you'll have no great fondness for the conquering king. Is there a name that you pray for? If your life group leader asks you this week, friend, who are you praying for? Whom might you speak to about Christ this week? Who has the Lord laid on your heart? Do you have a name? I was so encouraged recently in Life Group, we asked the question, who are you praying for? Who might you hope to share the gospel with this week? And answers just went around the circle. Roommate, workmate, friend, boss, neighbor. Christians, ask yourself, if I were living during the time of John, would I be in any danger of being stranded on an island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus? Or would I go from grocery store to restaurant to home and to work entirely, absolutely unnoticed? Charles Spurgeon urges us on in this way, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. The letter of Revelation is written to those who are partners with John on the island in this ministry. Look at John chapter 1, verse 9. This is where Paul or John is saying, this is who I'm talking to. I, John, your brother, brother in Jesus Christ, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that's our partnership. Have many of us not grown up memorizing these words in Romans 8, 35 to 36? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, let me encourage us to put this verse to work. Boldly go into the world as we have sung, sharing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Be absolutely dissatisfied with people around you staying lost and dead and damned in their sin with no hope in Christ. This is the commission of Jesus to the church. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. When Jesus had resurrected, he met his disciples and they wondered if now is the time that Jesus, now that he's resurrected, if this would be the time that all the conquering and the restoration was going to happen. And Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Maybe think about that as we interpret Revelation. Verse 8. But you will receive power. This is what you will receive. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and at the end of the earth. Church, the work of the Holy Spirit is the empowering witness to Jesus Christ all over the earth until Jesus returns. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today. What are we doing? Previously, when I was an intern at a church, we went through 40 Days of Purpose by Rick Warren. Like every book and every ministry has strengths and weaknesses, and I can't say I would recommend everything about it, but this one account has stood out to me as unignorable over the years. Rick Warren shared a personal testimony about the passing of his father. He said, My father was a minister over 50 years serving mostly in small, rural churches. He was a simple preacher, but he was a man with a mission. His favorite activity was taking teams of volunteers overseas to build buildings for small congregations. In his lifetime, Dad built over 150 churches around the world. In 1999, my father died of cancer. In the final week of his life, the disease kept him awake in a semi-conscious state nearly 24 hours a day. As he dreamed, he'd talk out loud about what he was dreaming. Sitting by his bedside, I learned a lot about my dad just listening to his dreams. He relived one church building project after another. One night near the end, my wife, my niece, and I were by his side. Dad suddenly became very active and tried to get out of bed. Of course, he was too weak, and my wife insisted he lay down, but he persisted in trying to get out of bed. So my wife finally asked him, Jimmy, what are you trying to do? And he replied, got to save one more for Jesus. I got to save one more for Jesus. Got to save one more for Jesus. And he began to repeat that phrase over and over. During the next hour, he said the phrase probably a hundred times. Got to save one more for Jesus. And as I sat by his bed with tears flowing down my cheeks, I bowed my head to thank God for my dad's faith. At that moment, dad reached out, placed his frail hand on my head and said, as if commissioning me, save one more for Jesus. Save one more for Jesus. 
Friends, I think this is the mindset and the heart set of the Spirit of God, empowering witness of Jesus Christ everywhere every member of the church goes. You can pray three things to this end this week that come from the Bible. Two in Colossians 4, 1, pray for God to open a door. God, open a door. Make a way. Let me bump into someone. Send me the waitress in this restaurant that needs to hear the gospel. Bring my neighbor out to get trash at the same time I do. Something. God, you open a door. Second thing from Colossians 4, God, give me clarity when I speak the gospel. When I talk about Jesus, when I talk about the gospel, help me, help me do it clearly. Help me have words. I, I cannot count the number of testimonies that I've heard. I've shared them. I have them in my own life, heard them from other people. I went to share the gospel, and, and I just felt helped. I just said things and remembered things from Scripture that, that I hadn't thought in a long time, but they came to mind, and they fit the moment. And thirdly, pray for boldness. From Ephesians 6. God, open a door, give me clarity, and then give me boldness to do what you've asked me to do. The Spirit loves to give boldness. I think this is one of the greatest misconceptions about Acts and the speaking of tongues and the power of the Spirit. In the book of Acts, tongues come, uh, or the great, so not talking about tongues, but when the Spirit fills the upper room where the disciples are praying, they are in persecution, they're being run out of town, and they're in the upper room praying, and what are they praying? They're praying for boldness to keep preaching the gospel despite persecution. And upon that prayer, the Spirit rushes into the room and fills the room and shakes the room. And what did it do? It emboldened them to preach and share the gospel. And like good consumers have done the last hundred years, we've turned it into a prayer for our own experience. God, would you come shake the room? Would you come fill the room so that we can feel you and know you? And the Spirit's going, I'm coming to embolden you to preach the gospel, not to entertain you. Pray for God to open a door. Pray for clarity when speaking the gospel and pray for boldness. And what do you do when you get out there into the world and you do it. You prayed for the door to be open. You prayed for your neighbor. You met outside. You had a conversation. You invited someone to your house. You asked them about the, their spiritual upbringing. And you spoke with clarity. And, and it was good. And you, you were even a little proud of how that was good. That was better than I thought I would ever do. I'm thankful to God. And you were bold. You, you said things that took courage. And then you get body slammed with a no. And a why are you so rude? Maybe this is not always the case. But if this happens, what in the world would make us want to get up another day and do it again with the same person or the next neighbor? Maybe today you're thinking, you know what, this, I just don't have it. I, I, I never 
seem to sense restlessness to share the gospel with others, or, or, or maybe it's, you know, I feel that fire, I, I feel the, the burning to, to do it, but I so often cower in fear or embarrassment. What is it that will bring about endurance of the faith and more testimony about Jesus? I think what we see in John 1, 19 through 20 is turning our eyes to the death-defying Savior. What does John see on the island when John is out there on this island in exile? What does he see? What is he shown First, up front, what's in the preface? What defines everything else that's coming in the book of Revelation? Pick up in verse 10. Revelation 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, really tempted to preach a message about gathering with the church on the Lord's day, but let's keep going. I hear behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book Send it to the churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Let's just pause for just a moment. Who are these churches, and why do they matter? I just want us to think real simply about this for this week. This week. One, think about the fact that there are seven churches. And these seven churches we see in going through the chapter, they have seven angels, And these seven churches are, as Jesus says in verse 20, the seven lampstands before the throne. What have we already learned about seven so far in the book of Revelation? It represents the fullness and the perfection of the glory of God. Were there only seven churches that John cared about? I don't think so. Were there only seven churches in Asia at the time? No. But is it significant that there were seven, maybe seven leading churches who were chosen to receive letters, I think so. It means it represents all the churches in all times. But most importantly, they are partners in the tribulation. As John has said, they are experiencing what John himself is experiencing. This seems to be one of the main motivations of the letter. John is under fire, and it seems like the seven churches are two. This is who John's writing to, fellow Christians who are speaking the word of God and testimony of Jesus, partners in that tribulation. And what happens next? What does John need when he's on the island? What does John first give to the churches? He says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 16, he sees Christ. He sees Christ. But John doesn't see Jesus like you put him in the children's books. John doesn't see felt bored Jesus. John sees Jesus as a figure from some other world. Look at John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The hair of his head were white like wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Is this the picture of Jesus that you carry around in your mind most days? This is not the picture of Jesus that we put on t-shirts and coffee mugs. John here in this passage seems to be borrowing from, fulfilling, and or recalling passages from at least these books in the Old Testament. Exodus, Judges, 1 Kings, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. You don't have to remember all those because we're coming back for part two in this chapter next week to look at all of those specifically. But for now, see that John is showing us that this vision of Jesus is not less, just left for amusement, amusement and, and, and being impressive or certainly not open to our own interpretation. But the importance of what John saw by the words that he uses and draws from the Old Testament give us the importance of this vision, and that's its meaning. This is not necessarily the physical properties of Jesus that we expect to see when we get into heaven. We see in chapter 5, for example, that Jesus is symbolized as a lamb slain with seven horns and seven eyes. Remember, we're in Revelation Revelation's native language is symbolism. What John is doing by using these words to describe what he saw is to give meaning to what he saw. His point was to anchor Jesus in other places in God's redemption, going backwards. Understand this vision means to understand how Jesus fits into what God is doing in the whole world in all time. Indeed, we saw last week in Ephesians that Jesus is the center in everything God is doing. All God's plans run in, through, and for Jesus. We saw this in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. Listen to that again. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, what God is doing in the world according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This is functionally what John is doing by using all of these languages from all of these passages to show that God is doing in Christ his plan for the fullness of time. That God is uniting in Christ his plans for heaven and earth, all things, all times. By alluding to Old Testament passages, John is saying that Jesus is like the priest in Exodus 25, like the warrior in Judges, like the voice of God in Exodus, and even as God himself in Daniel chapter 7. What effect is this vision supposed to have on us? Look and see how this affects John himself. Revelation 1, 17 When I saw him, when I saw what I just described to you, I fell at his feet as though dead. Does John receive what 
he needs when he's on the island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus? Is this what he needs? A vision so fearful that he falls at his feet as though dead. Church, if we are to share the word of God and the testimony of Jesus to one single person, we need a fearful vision of Christ to drive out all fear of men. No more should we be afraid of what any emperor or governor or mayor may do to us. We have seen the power and the purity of Christ. Who else can say they have this power and this glory in the world ever? I mean, you just heard it. It might sound neat to hear this kind of weird. We've got a sword in the mouth, the eyes are on fire. And, but imagine eyes glowing like a flame of fire. I think John wants us to see what he was seeing. Imagine what he was seeing. Eyes glowing like flaming fire behind his eyelids. Imagine someone's face shining like the sun right in front of you. You know what it's like to look at the sun. You want to look at it, but you can't. It's too much. It's too much. You can't. Have you ever been so afraid that you come weak in the knees? You ever hear something in the house and you're so afraid your body tries to keep you from going to the door to check on it? This is the kind of power and immensity which is in Jesus Christ. John saw it and he fell down in fear as though dead could barely even stand it. If you are a Christian today, might you need to repent of allowing your view of Jesus to become much less than he is in all of his glory? Maybe today you need to stop and repent and say, I've been believing in Jesus as, as true, but I have I've not seen him like this. He's become forgettable to me throughout the day. Maybe today your plan should be for your soul and your faithfulness to get an hour or two hours or four hours alone just reading through the book of Revelation just to learn about Jesus. Just to say, I need to see him as he is in the world that I'm in. Confess your weak views of Christ. Replace it with the biblical example of Christ. Friends, what if you're here today and you're not a Christian? What if you're listening online today and you're not a Christian? Does the fearful idea of Jesus surprise you? I wonder if today couldn't be the first step maybe for you as an unbeliever in in realizing that what you've heard about Jesus in the news or portrayed in Hollywood is a poor, flimsy, maybe we'll say paper tiger version of Jesus. If so, the first thing to do is just admit that what he had previously believed about Jesus wasn't the complete picture of Jesus. Even if you don't know what this version of Jesus even means yet, at least come to the agreement that, well, I haven't even dealt with that idea of Jesus yet. 
I haven't wrestled with that. I haven't even asked questions about that kind of Jesus just yet. And friends, let me just encourage you. You don't know the simplest things of Jesus until we have seen Jesus in all of His glory, all of His might, all of His power, all of His judgment, all of His strength. Because what we see is that when Jesus is seen like this, when Jesus is seen as otherworldly and divine and all-powerful and terrifying, all of a sudden the cross of Jesus Christ begins to take on a whole new tone. Because Jesus wasn't overpowered at the cross. Jesus wasn't powerless when he died on the cross. He was powerful. He laid down his life out of his own strength, out of his own love, out of his own mercy for sinners like me and you. He poured out his blood on the cross so that by believing in him, our sins would be washed white as snow by his blood. And then he shows us his great power again in raising from the dead, never to die again. When you see Jesus as as all-powerful, as majestic, as divine, as unbelievably terrifying, that he would give his life for you and your sins on the cross becomes a very glorious, wonderful, precious gift. I wonder if all of us should not take more serious our perception of Jesus today. Does your version of Jesus have any kind of effect like it did on John to you? Does it ever leave you on the floor? Is your version of Jesus easily forgotten, easily dismissed? If not, you have not seen Jesus in his fullness. And if not, I think you'll find that some other fear or some other fear of man has replaced it. Might we consider that a right fear of God and a right fear of Christ dispels our fears of men? This is important to us because, after all, what keeps us from sharing the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus most often? Is it not the fear of what men might do to us? Is it not the fear that Thanksgiving will be awkward with our family? Is it not the fear that someone might report you to someone else as having been spreading judgment and bigotry and lies by speaking the word of God. Consider how a right vision of Christ actually, in turn, dispels all fears. One pastor said it this way, so Christian brothers and sisters, are you prepared to continue following Christ? Are you prepared to do so as the government begins to reduce tax deductions for charitable giving? This was preached in 2009. Are you prepared to do so if they are removed altogether? In other words, you tied to the church, you can't even get a tax break for that anymore. Or when Christians are even less socially tolerated than we are now, and I don't just mean in the media, I mean in your neighborhood. What about when they begin to make fun of your children? What if certain jobs are closed to you and certain opportunities are not for you anymore? What if others, what if others, what what others should what if others should slander you and abuse and imprison you for following Jesus? What if they tell you you can follow Christ, but you just can't do this or that which Jesus commands you to do? Are you prepared to keep following Christ? Are you prepared to keep doing what he commands? 
And listen to what he says. Oh, friends, find your fears and you will find those idols that are keeping you from receiving the courage Christ would give you to follow him in this fallen world. We fall before Christ in order that we might stand before the hostile powers in this world. Christ brings us courage. Christians, the clear vision of Christ in all his glory and might and majesty is first so fatal, so glorious to us that it is fatal. But oh, how a vision of Christ brings us to fearlessness. The safest place to be in the world is on the floor before the Son of Man who has flaming eyes and whose face is shining like the sun and whose sword comes out of his mouth. His words pierce. The safest place to be is on the floor before him and have him come to put his hand on you and tell you, fear not. When he tells you not to be afraid, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything else in the world. Friends, it is not those who fall down afraid before Jesus who should be most afraid. It is those who stand opposed to him they will meet the judgment of the fire of his eyes. They will be pierced by the sword of his mouth. But not John. Not those who endure in trusting him and so in repenting fall before him, recognizing his might and his power to die and raise again. See now Jesus' response to John's response from seeing him. Verse 17 but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus' response to the man who was dead, like dead before him on the floor, is to raise up his courage. Those who truly fear Christ are the ones who have no reason to fear in the world. Why? Because our Lord, our Savior, our King has died for our sin on the cross to defeat all of death forever and he will never die again. Jesus will never die again. Let that sink in I died, and behold, I live forevermore. You may die, but do believe and trust this. Jesus lives forevermore, never to die again. Death no longer has a dominion over him. If death can't reign over Jesus, it won't reign over us. Jesus is now 
the sheriff in town. He holds the keys to death and Hades. When we share the word of God, men may place us in prison. And as they do in the movies, hang the prison keys on the wall just over there to always be in sight but never in our reach. But do not fear. Jesus holds the keys to death itself. When we share in the testimony of Jesus, seeking to save the lost, men may leave you stranded on an island to die. Do not fear. Jesus holds the keys to Hades, the realm of the dead. Psalm 118 verse 6 says it this way, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Shout it. Go on and shout it from the mountains. Go on and tell it asses that he is God. Let's pray. God, we come to you when we ask now that the words of your word would take root in our hearts, overturn the soil of all of our loves and affections, take root, grow, and bear fruit. Bear fruit of obedience in our lives. Bear the fruit of salvation in others' lives. God, in all the ways that we need to be convicted about being timid and quiet, would you convict us today? Pierce us. Keep us from sleep to be more burdened about this life. All the ways that we need encouragement, Father, to keep going. Once again, pick up the torch of the Spirit-empowered witness. Help us be encouraged. Help us be bold, open doors, give us clarity that we might walk in a spirit-empowered ministry of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We pray for this place to be filled in the coming weeks and months with people who today don't trust you. This is the last place they would dream about coming. This is the last group of people they would have any desire to hang out with on a Sunday morning. Singing to you would be the last song that comes to their mind. Father, we pray that by the faithfulness in this church, by your faithfulness to us, by the power of the Spirit, to go and boldly proclaim There would be people walking through the doors in this place to fellowship with us and to sing with us, to glorify you 
who don't today. Father, would you bring to mind just now very practical things for us? A name, a picture of a front door down the street, a car that passes by our house every day, a coworker across the table, a family member, and we lift them up to you. We lift them up to you and ask for you to work in their lives. Give us a door for them. To give us clarity for them. To give us boldness for them. God, may you be honored and glorified as we live fearlessly before the most feared king in the world, Jesus Christ. We love you. We pray all these things for your glory. And for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen.